Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. What's the frequency, Kenneth, and why aren't you listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast? I want to thank my friends in REM for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a Raw Bone podcast. Now, I know that there are some good podcasts out there. There are a lot of them, but only one is wicked good, and it's Stick to Wrestling. I'll tell you what. Let's ask the guys from Goodfellas what they think of the idea, the concept of there being another Wicked Good Wrestling podcast. <laughs> when Pulp Fiction came out, that became my favorite movie of all time, but it's changed. Goodfellas is my favorite movie of all time. Follow us on Facebook. Just do a, a search for Stick to Wrestling and our Facebook group will come up. We have a lot of cool guys who talk about wrestling and whatever else. If you have a question for the show or about the show, we answer it. As a matter of fact, this show is nothing but questions from our Facebook group, and we do this frequently. I enjoy this format of the show because I get to kind of sit in the passenger seat and not have to drive and just answer a bunch of questions. It's fine. Also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guys fighting with chairs in his avatar. Join me in my march for a million Twitter followers. I only need about another million Twitter followers for that to happen. And with that, I've already introduced the show. We're going to do a question and answer format. Returning once again is Sean Heimberger. Sean, thanks for being on again. Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure to be with someone that has so many high friends in unfamiliar places to me. You're friends with REM and the cast of Goodfellas. You, uh, clearly way above me and i only have 950,000 twitter followers to go to hit that million mark you're in a similar spot to me and yeah i think it's cool that rem wrote that song about that podcast like 25 years before it even started those guys are smart way ahead of their time they could see the future of stick to wrestling (laughs) there you go it was made to be All right, we are going to continue answering the questions that we got from the Facebook group. We're going to get rolling here. Pete Pingle wants to know, instead of going to the WWF, Bob Backlund goes to the NWA. How do you think he would have done? Sean, your thoughts. Oh, Lord. John, we've been here two minutes and another damn Bob Backlund question. (laughs) Are you kidding me? The first time I was on your show, it was Jerry Lawler's birthday. We're supposed to talk about Jerry Lawler. And I wound up getting sidetracked into a five-minute monologue on why I hate Bob Backlund. And the first question you ask me is about Bob Backlund. Was this deliberate on your part? I am going to plead the fifth on that. Okay. (laughs) I I really don't hate Bob Backlund. I just hated him as a kid because I rooted for the bad guys. Uh, See, I'm still stuck in that. it's, It's funny. When I look back at the wrestlers from that time period, I still fall into the lingo of the 12 and 13 year old kid that was watching it, the bad guys and like the magazines, the aftermath, the rule breakers. Yeah. <laughs> but yet, if you talk about stuff later on, it's, it's fully comfortable with heel and baby face and all that. Uh, what was the question again? Uh, how would Bob, Bob Backlund have done? I, I think I'm thinking in the NWA, meaning like uh, 
you know, in, in seven, I guess he came to the WWF in 76 and he won the title in 78. And I'm wondering if the question is, how would he have done as NWA champion? I honestly think he'd have been better as NWA champion than not as NWA champion. As dumb as that is to, to say. As NWA champion, I think he could have very easily done what Jack Briscoe did and come out, and, and to a lesser extent, Dory Funk Jr., where you come out and you, by golly, I'm coming to your town and I'm looking forward to fighting your mandatory contender uh, so-and-so, and I'll be in uh, <laughs> at uh, Johnson City High School in Johnson City, Tennessee, and by golly, I'm going to go out there and give it my best effort. I, I could see him actually doing very well in that. I think he would have had to, at that time, worked on the subtle heel that the NWA champion would have had to have done. Not as NWA champion, I think he would have been a, he could have been somebody's top baby face in the territory, but might have even been a, better as, a, as the second from the top baby face in a good territory. I think he would have done okay. If it, we're talking about NWA champion, I think he'd have been fine. Uh, otherwise, I think he would have had a solid top level career, but maybe not elite. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, uh, well, a couple of things. Um, I mean, my friends and I hated Bob Backlund growing up, and you know, we cheered for a mix of baby faces and heels, but Backlund, no matter who Backlund was wrestling, we were on that guy's side. And here's a story. We were at the Boston Garden in 1982, okay? This was the—and we got good seats, and my best friend who I went to wrestling matches with was a superior athlete. I mean, he got a football scholarship at the University of Houston, right? So Bob Backlund, he had just beaten Buddy Rose, and he has the towel, and he's going to throw the towel out to the audience. He's, like, teasing each side of the ring, and finally he throws it out towards us. My friend Get is on a chair, and he jumps in the air, and this guy could jump, and he caught the towel, and he threw it right back at Bob Backlund. I don't know. <laughs> I know people who were at the Boston Garden who listened to this show, and I want to witness because it was – October 82, I want to say, and yeah, this happened, and Bob just like smiled, grabbed the towel, and threw it out to someone else. I could just see, I could see Bob back and with, I'm sorry, buddy, I didn't know you didn't want my stinky, sweaty towel, I think I'll give it to somebody else in the audience, and I'll be, I'll be back here in just a minute, and hopefully I'll be raising that belt high. <laughs> that, that was Bob. He was already under consideration to become the NWA champion when he went to the WWF and became, you know, the WWF champion, supposedly both Eddie Graham and Sam Muchnick, Bob became WWF champion on their recommendation. So there's an excellent chance he would have been NWA champion. If not, I could have seen him being a top baby face in Florida, certainly in Georgia. Uh, yeah. I think he would have been fine. Yeah, I think he would have had a fine career. I mean, I think it would have worked out. He probably, it, was the, it turned out to be the best thing for him, but yes. I, I think he'd have been fine either way. Uh, let me see. Neil Warrer. Asked, what if the last Hulk Hogan-Nick Bockwinkle match, this is in 1983, doesn't get the dusty finish? Does Hulk Hogan go to the WWF with Vern's belt, craps on the AWA, and effectively kills <laughs> off the AWA in 1984? Now, just a little bit of background. They had a huge Hulk Hogan versus Nick Bockwinkle match. Uh, one of my friends was there, Steve Walsh, and they did the dusty finish. They sent everyone home thinking Hulk Hogan was the champion. And then they turn on the TV, and no, Nick Bockwinkle still still the champion on some technicality. Uh, Steve Walsh said that was a major blow to the AWA in Minneapolis. But just wanted to give you that background. What is your opinion, Sean? That wasn't Steve Walsh, the former University of Miami quarterback, was it? 
As a matter of fact, it was now. <laughs> Seriously? No, I, uh, I'm kidding. You, no one's giving I, I, first. I, 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 I got you. I love stuff like that because I, I part of me can see that that Vince would this would be Vince was already tearing apart the the plan was to take slowly tear Vern's product apart, you know, lumber by lumber by lumber. I could have seen him doing that, but the problem that I wouldn't have seen him the reason I don't think he would have is because they never acknowledged anybody. Who who what this other wrestling certainly couldn't be what we have, pal. <laughs> I, I I don't think that would have ever happened, but it it would have been really compelling television if he would have showed up with that license plate title and it showed up with at on McMahon's television. But John, you grew up in this territory. I mean, if you didn't read the magazines, people would have looked at that and said, "What the hell's that?" If somebody put a turkey platter on a t- uh, and put a strap on, what the hell is this? I and, learned yesterday that belt is nicknamed the penitentiary belt. Because it was actually made in a, in a penitentiary. Well, it makes sense to me. I mean, <laughs> the, the old joke was is uh, prisoners made license plate, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it it looks like. I mean, I, but but the answer to the question is, I think that would have been really great. I just can't see Vince doing it because that would have given credibility to Vern's company that it even existed. Because I mean, look at did. Do you remember, other than the occasional, uh, the back when Harley race, and uh, that they didn't even acknowledge anybody else existed? No, yeah, I, I just, I just don't think that they would have bothered to do that. That would have been given Vern credibility, but it would have been really interesting if they would have. Well, they when they brought in Harley Race in 1980, Vince got on the air in in the New York market and explained what the NWA title was, and he compared it to the like the NFL there's there's the NFL and then there's the World Football League there's the NHL and then there was the World Hockey League there's the WWF and then there's the NWA here's the thing i think Vince would have done it because he wanted to do it with Harley Race and he did eventually do it with Ric Flair so i think Vince would have been okay with it i don't think Hogan would have done it i don't think Hogan had cause to do something that malicious to Vern Gagne. It's like, it was bad enough. I don't want to say bad enough, but I mean, Vern was taking it on the chin badly enough that Hogan was leaving him anyway. But to go out and do that, I don't think Hogan would have done it. But had he done it, I don't think that would have killed off the AWA. If if the AWA was smart, if Vern was smart, you know, it'd be like, look, we've got this disgruntled, guy who just quit the company because he wouldn't do what he was told and now he's on that other channel making a fool of himself and you know we're having if, if he would have came out like like you've said before and did a bill watt style promo yeah we had this guy here and yeah he had nick on the run but by golly i think in the end he knew he wasn't going to be able to be successful yep. and blah 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 and they'll let him go off into the minor leagues and do whatever it is that he does and if he would have done something like that i don't think it would have killed the awa off no, not, at least not right away. So, at least not then. Yeah, they were busy doing that on their own on ESPN coming up. Oh with, yes, they Wayne, were with Wayne the Train Bloom and the car lifting championships. And I'm often compelled by really bad wrestling television. I it's the stuff that I love watching is like the AWA Team Challenge series, like Mike Enos against the Trooper and the Football Tackle Challenge, <laughs> and uh, horrible stuff like that. Like you know. Uh, 
and the WCW, the, the some of the most entertaining stuff is the stuff that's so bad. You know, yeah. like Dallas Page, Canyon running around as Dallas Page calling everybody bro. And uh, that that is, to me, stuff that is so bad, it's good. It's kind of like Mystery Science 3000 th- Theater for wrestling. That's the stuff that I go back and just laugh like crazy. And that was Vern at the end. And I don't think it would have got to that way just because Hogan took the belt. No, and, and you know, people, there are some people who didn't live through the AWA like you and I kind of did. They're like, oh, no, the AWA was good. They had Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. They had Kurt Henning. They had Nick Bockwinkle. Yeah, there was like a good, let's say in 1986, like a good two-hour highlight reel of the AWA, but like they did not put on good television week after week. It was boring. It was always a bunch of guys that you could tell had just came off of Vern Gagne's farm. <laughs> And the giveaway was, is I, I still remember they had a guy, they had this great tag team, and great in uh, quotation marks, of Ricky Rice and Derek Starfire Dukes. I remember this because of the boxing. Uh, yep. I'll lead into that. Uh, and within like two weeks' time, they were on ESPN being pushed as their best babyface tag team. And, and within about a week or two, Ricky Rice is doing a job on WWF TV, and Derek Dukes is lasting 15 seconds and taking a bump for Mark Gastineau in a supposed boxing match. Uh, yeah, I remember the Mark Gastineau, who was a lineman for the New York Jets, who became a, a boxer, and Dukes just like, I mean, the pro wrestler in him came out. He did the most spectacular dive I have ever seen in boxing. I've never seen a bump like that in boxing. I've never seen anything like that, because you could literally... Uh, it's probably on YouTube someplace. Uh, Gastineau like lands a casual jab, and it's almost like Dukes counts to three, and all of a sudden collapses like he got hit by Stan Hansen's lariat. I, I do remember that controversy, and here's the thing: you know, boxing it is legit for the most part, and when you have stuff like that that was so sensational, and what, what was it, ninety or ninety-one? Yeah, that was. I, I, I believe it was ninety. Okay, boxing really took a hit from that, but anyway. Al Bletcher asks, and thank you for the questions, everyone, which current product do you enjoy the most today and why? I, Sean, I don't think you watch anything. I really love YouTube with the AWA King Challenge series. <laughs> I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of Mid-South Wrestling. <laughs> That's the best I got, Al. I uh, pretty much stuck in the, uh, in the age of VHS tapes. All right. I don't watch very much at all. I... I didn't dislike AEW, but it didn't draw me in. I probably need to give that another chance, especially since I had I knew the owner in, in another life. The only thing I watch now is the WWF, for lack of a better word, pay-per-views. They're monthly events that are on WWE Network. For the most part, I like them. I you know maybe they have one bad one a year, and they probably have like two or three really good ones a year. It's kind of weird now that there's no audience, but they're doing their best. I give them credit for that. Uh, I mean, I enjoy it. And the reason I watch it is because I have access to it. I subscribe to WWE Network, and I want to justify paying that $9.99 a month. So except for the last one, I have gone out of my way to watch all of them live over the past six years. I couldn't watch the last one because the stipulation was so stupid. If you're not familiar they had a match with uh, Rey Mysterio Jr. against 
Seth Rollins and the, you had to win the match by pulling your opponent's eye out. And I just said, you know what? I'm sitting this one out. But I'm watching SummerSlam, which comes out uh, a few days before this podcast is going to come out. Anyway, Barry Rose, friend of the show, or former guest on the show and a friend of ours. Could Steve Kern have succeeded or exceeded Bob Backlund's reign if given the opportunity as WWF champion? Your thoughts, Sean? Yes, very much so. I would have bought that wholeheartedly, especially uh, more in hindsight, more than even then, because we didn't see Steve Kern up here. But uh, when you find out the background of you know his dad being a Vietnam POW and uh, you see his skill in the ring, I, yeah, I would have bought that completely. I, I, in many ways, I think Steve Kern might have been better than Bob Backlund to this audience. Yeah, Steve Kern, when Bob Backlund first came to the WWF, I was g- just getting the magazines, and Bob appeared on my television for the first time Christmas morning, 1976. And, you know, I, I knew who he was from the magazines, and he and Steve Kern were like, I don't want to say the same guy, but they were like getting the same push in Florida. They were on the same level. And I have heard over the years, I heard many years ago, that Steve Kern was the number two guy in that spot. Had Bob Backlund not get, gotten it, Steve Kern would have. I think Steve would have been fine as WWF champion. I don't know if he would have exceeded Backlund because Backlund was hard to exceed. He had a lot of really great matches. He was a draw, so there was no problem with his title reign. But I think Steve would have been fine in that role. And we're talking about, you know, the stratosphere here, WWF champion. Yeah, I, I, the only reason I would say uh, going out on a limb and gambling and saying exceed because I think Kern would have been probably roughly the equal of Backlund as far as when they looked at him, a legitimate wrestler. But he being a, seemed like he's a little smaller than Backlund. So he you was. could have played, you could play a little more of the underdog against these heavy monsters coming in. You had the powerhouses of the Ken Patera types and the occasional giants like the studs and the mulligans and, and those type of guys. I think that would have done very well here. I would have been all down for that. I, I completely agree with you. Dominic Violi asked, what if Vince never got the USA Network spot? This is 1983 when he got it from Southwest Championship Wrestling. Who could have gotten that spot? And what would Vince's next plan of attack be? Sean, what do you think? I have no idea who would have gotten it. I guess uh, anybody theoretically could have bought it. I would imagine uh, McMahon would have probably just found another network. And see, at, the, at, at that time, John... And, Cable TV was still in its infancy, and if you sent somebody a check and said, we'd like to be on Saturday mornings at 11, unless they had a hit on Saturday mornings at 11, you were there. So if you had the extra money to purchase your time, they were going to take your money. So I would imagine it could have just as easily been uh, Bravo or whoever else they wanted to hand money to at that particular time, other than... USA. I wouldn't imagine Vince wouldn't have had any trouble getting on someplace at that particular time. The cable universe then is far different from now. You didn't have as many channels, but they had more time available. If you showed up with a check, they ran you. And I don't think he'd have had any trouble at all finding someone to to televise his show. You know, we're talking like 1983, and it's amazing what USA Network became because USA Network was absolute junk in 1983. I mean, they were showing old Western shows that, you know, 
I would be like, oh, wow, I remember that was on like 11 in the morning on Saturdays on, on UHF. So you, we're, we're sinking lower than that. But here's why I think Vince McMahon went out and won the wrestling war. He was ahead of the game. I don't think it ever entered into anyone else's mind to approach USA Network and say, hey, how'd you like to have my show on instead of this show? And I will be on time with my payments. I'll even give you more. I don't think anyone did. And that's why Vince was so ahead of the game. If he was for some reason not available, not able to get the spot, let's say USA was like, no, you know, we like Joe Blanchard that much. I think Vince would have just moved on to the next one. By the way, the next one turned out to be WTBS. Like Vince, once again, he has this vision. He's going to get on USA Network, and then he's going to steal the WTBS spot from Ole Anderson. So, and, and no one was that ahead of Vince. I think if Vince hadn't got that spot, he would have just moved on to the next thing, which would have been, like you said, either another cable company. He would have you know, continued to increase his product and syndication, and he would have gone after WTBS. For all the criticism that we all have of Vince McMahon, and they're all justified for the most part, he was playing chess when everybody else was playing tiddlywinks. Uh, he was so <laughs> far ahead of those guys as far as all that stuff goes. They weren't even close to that. I can't imagine anybody saying that they were going to try to do anything like that. And I don't think it would have been a factor. You're exactly right. He just would have went to the next. If somebody would have wanted that spot, whether it be Joe Blanchard or somebody else, he just would have went to the next network. Time slots weren't hard to find in 1983. Yeah. Part of it is, like, let's say Bill Watts says, okay, I'm going to try to get on cable TV and, and go national. It was kind of frowned upon at that time. And, and Vince really, you know, okay, now Bill Watts' product is on in Minneapolis where Vern Gagne is promoting, and that's a problem. I think Watts was more in line with the other promoters as far as crossing territorial lines, whereas Vince clearly didn't care. I'll buy that. I'll All right. Jamie Ward asked, what if Vince kept the WTBS show as its own show and ran Georgia as a satellite promotion? Your thoughts, Sean? So this question is, he basically keeps Georgia wrestling, doesn't acknowledge that he's behind it, but suddenly guys start showing up there as it's basically a WWF minor league territory. It's what we're talking about. I, I think if I'm understanding correctly, let's say Vince just kept running Georgia with the Georgia guys, with the spoiler, Ted DiBiase, Ronnie Garvin, et cetera. Uh, it would have been okay for a while. But what would have happened was, I, what I would have, sooner or later, Vince wouldn't have been able to resist the opportunity to have somebody go down there and beat the spoiler and beat Mr. Wrestling 2 and all that stuff. And then the Georgia people would have perceived that as minor league. That all of a sudden, we are the farm team now. It would have been very difficult for Vince to keep them separate. And once you establish that you are the minor league team, there's no coming back from that. Agreed. I think Vince was really never interested in running two separate promotions. There was always talk of him running a satellite promotion so that he can get his younger wrestlers better prepared, but he, he never got around to it. He just made an agreement with Memphis in like 92 or 93. And yeah, I just don't think that was on his mind having two different promotions until 2001 when he tried to run WCW and WWF separately where he would have booked his own wrestling war 
but he couldn't get television for WCW. Anyway, Brian Crawley asked, what happens if David Don Eric doesn't die? How does his NWA title run go? Do the other brothers die? Does WCW pull out of the NWA or does Crockett pull out? A lot going on here, Sean. Well, the one thing I can certainly say, Brian, is if he doesn't die, he lives. For a while. For a while. I, I think, um, and I have no idea whether his other brothers die then or now. I think David Von Erich would have been the best NWA champion of the Von Erichs. His stuff in Florida is outrageously entertaining. We're running around with the cowboy hat with the roach clip on it and Mr. Funk. And that is such good stuff that you, I wish there was more of it. And and the one clip that they have where David's in Florida and Carrie must've been visiting for the weekend or whatever. And it happens to be a a weekend where Ric Flair's there. And is it Butch Reed that picks up Flair and throws him into both Von Erichs outside on the concrete floor? And yes, it was. uh, David Von Erich in Florida was great stuff. I wish there was more of it. But that showed you that he could have been the heel-slash-subtle heel to be the NWA champion. The only problem may have been he would have been getting the belt at a time where there was fewer and fewer territories and therefore fewer and fewer needs to go into you know uh, Columbia, South Carolina, and Richmond, Virginia, and Lubbock, Texas for your regional title defenses. And he was never going to be a Ric Flair type. And that was just starting to get into that time frame where it was becoming more national, even at that level. So I probably would have hurt him at that time, but he'd have been great. If he would have matured in, say, 79 or 80 instead of 82, 83, 84, he would have been really good, I think. Uh, you know, I and this is why I love having guests, because we've, we've talked about this before, but Sean brings a brand new perspective to this. I, I've said it before, I'll be quick about it. I think of all the wrestlers that either died or had their careers ended by injury in the 80s, David Von Erich had the brightest future. That includes Magnum TA. David was only 24 when he died. He was young enough to have been part of the wrestling war had he... You know, had he not died at an early age. So, I, you know, what would have happened with his title run? I'm, I'm sure he would have gotten pretty much what Kerry got, which was a quick run with the belt. And that's that's pretty much it. As far as world class pulling out of the NWA, as they did late in 85, I think that was inevitable. I don't yeah. think Crockett would have. That was coming no matter who the champion was. I mean, yeah. there was nothing that could have been done about that. And David might have been, in the end, just a guy that, putting aside the fact that he passed away, of course, that just a vic of bad timing. He was a guy that everybody always talks about. Billy Superstar Graham was born 10 or 15 years outside of where he should have been. David Von Erich was probably about five years. He'd have been terrific as the NWA champion when Harley was champion, when Terry Funk was. He'd have been great as the champion in that particular era. In the mid-'80s, things had changed a little bit, maybe not quite as much. But I, I think he'd have been, he would have been very talented, and he certainly could have pulled off the heel stuff. I, that would have been – I can just imagine him coming into Georgia on national television wearing the cowboy hat, and that would have been great. Talking about how you rednecks in Georgia. Basically, he could have done the cowboy version of what Michael Hayes did in World Class. 
going into Georgia and oh, you know, in Texas, you see we actually have top contenders. <laughs> Instead of you offering up the Mister Wrestling Twos, I could just see the the arrogant because you just looked at if you look at those that Florida stuff, you look at him and you go, if you're sitting there in that particular time frame, God, this guy's such a jackass. Yeah, I, I know you knew people like that, John. You know, you and I are close to the same age. You knew people like that guy, and you didn't <laughs> like them. They walked through your high school. I know that guy. He's an asshole. <laughs> I was that guy. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think he would have done very well, I think, in that particular time. You know, one thing, and if anyone is saying, you know, oh, I saw David Von Erich, and he wasn't that good or whatever, please do me a favor. Think of another wrestler that you thought was really good, right? Go into Wikipedia and look up how old he was and what he was doing when he was 22, 23, 24 years old. And David Von Erich was way ahead of the game compared to everyone else. We're talking about how great he was in Florida. He was 22 years old doing this stuff. Anyway. Isn't he roughly the same age within a year or two of guys like Sting and Scott Hall and Kevin Nash? I mean, it's not unrealistic that he could still be on television today if used properly should he have desired this is not a guy that you look back and he would be 70 years old right now he's roughly the same age as the legends that you can still roll out once or twice a year or come to your town to sign your baseball at the minor league game or uh the occasional chance to get he could have been one of those guys that we talked about with Tully and Arn standing in the middle of the ring with Ricky Morton on a on a, a, a whatever I can't even think of the damn name right off man all elite <laughs> he could have been still doing that stuff this is not an old guy no. or would have been an old guy it's easy for us to often glorify people that are cut down before the prime we all do it we do it in music we do it in sports we do it in television it's very easy to fall into that trap to say what a tremendous loss. And sometimes you look back, and it really wasn't that big a loss. Well, in the case of David Von Erich, it really was that big a loss. Yeah, if my math is correct, he would only be 60 years old right now. I think he's right around the same age as Bret Hart. And, that, you know, I've pounded on the table for that, you know, for I've been pounding for over 30 years. I'm not going to stop. Anyway, uh, Lawrence Good Miles, for you. You're right. Well, I mean, I can't change the answer. You know, that's the answer. <laughs> Good for you. You're right. Keep on preaching, brother, because sometimes people just don't want to listen to the right answer. All right. Marcel Harnois, if I am pronouncing his name correctly, how would you see the booking done if shortly after Magnum's car accident, the horseman turned on Flair? Given Flair the top baby face spot and Tully takes Flair's spot as head of the horseman, I always thought a Flair versus Tully in the horseman run could be special. Your thoughts, Sean? We did just talk about that during our conversation, bit. although it may have been last week, and I agree with him, but you would have had to have done it that Tully was the instigator and Tully was the beneficiary. I, I don't think at that particular time Ole would have been bought, and I don't think Arn at that time would have been bought. You would have had to have built it around Tully's the guy that threw him out. Tully's the guy that would have benefited by getting the world championship shots and then build on it the way we talked about during the other conversation about it. I think it would have done well. I'm not saying it would have done, done peak money, but I think they certainly could have done 
very solid to above average business with it. And Tully's the kind of talker that at that particular time, once he would catch fire, I think it could have done at least above average business with the possibility of better. Yeah, I have always thought that they turned the wrong guy in 1987 or the end of 87 when Lex Luger became a babyface. They thought he was going to be the next Hulk Hogan or they wanted him to be their version of Hulk Hogan. And I just don't see it. I think there should have been Ric Flair being the one who turns. And I would have had Lex Luger as the one who instigated that turn. But you can still have Rick versus Lex versus Arn versus Tully after that and whoever fills out the spot for the for the next horseman, which turned out to be Barry Windham. So, I mean, Rick... Now, now, uh, uh, now, am I I reading... Now, I'm making sure I want to get the question correct. That's assumed... Now, Luger wasn't necessarily in the territory at that time, correct? At the time of Magnum's accident, he was not. Okay. That's probably why I I didn't mention that. But I like that. And it would have been possibly a way to protect Luger, who was still not exactly reminiscent of a average wrestler in the ring at that particular time. No. They could have protected him a little bit, saying Tully and Arn are the guys that are going to take Ric Flair, and they're going to, they're going to be the stalking horses. They're going to soften Ric Flair up for Lex Luger to take advantage, because Lex Luger does this, this, and this well, but is otherwise inexperienced. We're going to soften Ric Flair up doing what we do to weaken him, and when he takes on Lex Luger, he will not have the advantages that he normally would have. I can see that working. Yeah, and you know what, Dan? We're talking about like right after Magnum's accident. I know they connected Nikita Koloff's turn directly to Magnum's accident. For whatever reason, I don't think they should have connected a Flair turn with Magnum's accident unless they did it exactly like they did with Nikita, where, you know, he's he's moved by this tragic accident. And still, Nikita and Magnum had that connection that Flair and Magnum just didn't. So, yeah, if, if they did this, I would have waited until, like, the, the middle or the end of 1987. Anyway, Lawrence Miles wants to know, what if Vern sold the AWA to Eddie Einhorn when Pro Wrestling USA negotiations were taking place? This is mid to, like, summer, fall 1984. What do you think, Sean? I don't think it would have really changed anything. You still would have had to deal with the other guys involved with their talent and their pieces of the, of the uh, sending their talent to Pro Wrestling USA. And, and everything Eddie Einhorn's ever touched other than the Chicago White Sox has went to hell anyway. Yeah. I, I've never seen what is so spectacular a businessman about Eddie Einhorn. The TVS network went under. Uh, he was involved in the, uh, the Buffalo thing, the, what was it, the, the Johnny Powers thing mm. uh, in wrestling. And everything he, the guy's ever been involved in has never worked out other than, than the Chicago White Sox. And if you can't make money in, in the big four sports, you know, boy, you're really clueless. So I've never found Eddie Einhorn to be this genius that had the magic bullet to anything. So I, I don't think that would have changed. I think exactly how it played out is how it would have played out. I am inclined to agree, although, uh, I mean, he certainly had money. Uh, what, what, what would he have done with it? I don't know. Would he have been able to attract all the top talent and use that money to get into syndication and or cable? But I think at the end of the day, Vince is going to win this thing. Vince had a commitment to winning that none of these other guys did. And I'm not talking about the regional guys. The regional guys didn't have the money. 
And the Eddie Einhorns of the world thought because they were from other avenues, they were naturally, they were smarter. They had advantages. McMahon didn't. McMahon's advantage was is he knew this business. He knew what it had to take, and he was going to be all in, win, lose, or draw. He was going to throw everything in to win this battle where the Eddie Einhorns and the Ted Turners and, and all these people that come in from outside of the business, they all have breaking points where they say, this is no good. I'm tired of losing money anymore. McMahon was not going to do that. He was going to keep throwing it in. And that's why he hits why he beat them all. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Kevin Elias, you might not have an opinion here, but I'll, I'll read the question anyway. Do you think that longer multi-year title reigns would work in today's wrestling environment? For example, WWE has what seems like 100 titles. Would it make more sense to flip-flop the minor titles, but to keep the world title on the same guy for a year or more? What do you think? I have this problem in boxing where we have four organizations, including one of them that has four champions in each division. A super champion, a world champion, an interim champion, and a regular champion. So I'm not unfamiliar with the problems of too many titles. I would think you're better off, in my opinion, getting rid of some of the peripheral titles. I mean, do you really need the Intercontinental and the U.S.? Do you really need several different titles that are superfluous? Uh, Step on your tongue there, Sean. You have too many of them. Therefore, none of them mean anything. And I think longer reigns would help. But but see, again, but from my way of thinking, they have too many pay-per-views. So why do you have title matches? Well, you have title matches to put on and that in this day and age to put on pay-per-views and if you don't have 35 belts you don't have enough stuff to show a pay-per-view every month and have it quote-unquote mean something i would much rather see fewer pay-per-views fewer titles and have the titles mean something so i'm all in on longer title reigns i'm all in on champions proving their worth and in order to do that then the price for that might be chopping some of these minor league titles that everybody in the world gets to take their picture with and uh, sell themselves on the independent circuit for wearing a belt as WWE superstar, former European, Spanish language, Eastern Portuguese heavyweight champion, and you got a picture of you with a belt and we'll sell it for five bucks at your local Indies show. Yeah, you see, I don't think they have too many champions. They are running three separate brands. Each brand has a top title for the, for the men. A top title, a, a a secondary title, and tag team title. So I, I don't think that's too bad. As far as like multi-year title reigns, when Brock Lesnar held the WWF title, I looked it up. He held it for, for 504 days. People were complaining about that being too long. So you can't make everyone happy, but I think... No, it's, it's, I, John, I it's, think, a, it's, it's a different era. It's a different era. Yeah. And that's a great point that I uh, didn't realize because I, I hadn't thought about it. Is they do have three companies, theoretically, and three shows. So there's nothing wrong with having a top title. I I do think you can lessen their importance when you have too many underneath that. If you have, uh, I get, what is it? It's Raw, SmackDown, and the uh, NXT. There's nothing wrong with each of those companies having their top title. But if you have too many underneath that, I mean, uh, if, if you've weakened your product to the point that you have three shows, what's wrong with having a top title and a tag team title and a women's division title. You have three shows already. Do we really need secondary titles for each of those companies when you don't have as many wrestlers because we have three companies? Well, I mean, they've got so many wrestlers. It's insane how many talented wrestlers that WWE has. I mean, 
the reason they have three shows, which is a lot of television, is because they're making a lot of money from those three shows. The, the rights fees for SmackDown, NXT, and Raw are, I mean, definitely justify their existence. But, I mean, you know, as far as guys keeping titles for over a year, or let's say like Bob Backlund, six years. Oh, I don't you can't think get away with that now. No, you, you can't you, get away you could with not. that now. Uh, you, you, the, the, the problem, I think, with a lot of that would be, John, is having the title longer lends you credibility. But at the same time, once you get to a point that it's beyond that point, people will say, we know what's going to happen now. Yep. He's not going to lose. So it's a fine line towards building credibility of the title where you're not giving it to every Tom, Dick, and Harry that steps into the ring, but yet having it be too long that people say he's not going to lose. And I'll defer to your judgment on the current product, but I know that we have a major league problem in boxing with too many belts and too many titles. I, even when, I always thought Crockett had too many titles. Oh, yeah. Had the, if everybody's got something, nothing means anything. Yeah. No, I, I don't think that's the case with, with WWE. Crockett, oh my God, everyone had a title. I want to bring something else up too. You kind of spoke about this. Like Anything can happen at any moment. In 98, I want to say, this just jumped into my head, so I haven't researched it. The WWF had a pay-per-view on a Sunday night where the the title changed hands. Then it changed hands again on Raw on Monday. And old-school wrestling fans were up in arms. They were angry as all get-out and because the title was changing hands too often. And my take on that was, why not have the unpredictability of, yes, a title can change hands at any time, including the night after a pay-per-view. That was my take on that. But anyway. I actually liked that when they did it the first time. It's very much like the Dusty finish. For one time, it's great. Mm -hmm. But after a while, when you start doing it multiple times, people start getting ticked off because I just paid X amount of dollars for a pay-per-view, and the next night, these two guys wrestled for free. Why am I paying for this? And Uh, so for one time, it's great because you're exactly right. It's just Anything can happen. Unpredictability. Suspend your disbelief because anything can happen. But when you start doing it all the time, you start to make your audience unhappy. Yeah, good point. It is a good point about, wow, I just paid for a pay-per-view for a title match. Now you're giving it away free on Raw. Dennis Labordes, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. What if Vince Jr. stuck to having wrestling on the marquee, not entertainment, and work respectably with the other promoters? What do you think? That's pretty interesting. So basically, we would have had a version of the NWA, but McMahon would have been the company above all, but everybody else would have maybe kept their territories and worked it out with him. I, you know, I can see where that might, may have worked for a while, but we are dealing with Vincent Kennedy McMahon. Inevitably, he would have wanted to gobble him up. He would have wanted control, and he would have ate him up. But I mean, for a while, it might have worked. Yeah. Could it have worked if Vince wanted to do that? Yeah, sure. But, I mean, Vince wanted it all. I mean, he no longer wanted to be from Bangor to Baltimore. He wanted to be running three shows a night. He didn't want Eddie Graham running Miami. He wanted Miami. He didn't want JCP running Charlotte. He wanted Charlotte. So, I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, it sounds great in theory. It's a great question, but unrealistic. All right. Laszlo Takics, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, sir. 
The Iron Sheik breaks Hulk Hogan's leg on January 23rd, 1984. What's happening on March 25th, 1985, the night of WrestleMania 1? Let me preface this by saying, you know, I'll I'll answer the question, but that wasn't going to happen. What what are your thoughts, Sean? I don't think that wasn't going to happen, but if it does, Hulk Hogan's got a year to heal and you can you can rebuild him. Yep. Uh, to, to use the $6 million man phrase, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. They would have rebuilt him, and I would almost bet somebody would have been coming in to beat the Iron Sheik real quick. Yeah, I, I just can't see Iron Sheik going you know, full you know, out-of-it mode with Vince McMahon, but let's right. say he does. I mean, Vince, pardon the pun, picks up the pieces and moves on, and you know, we still have WrestleMania when we're supposed to have WrestleMania. Yeah, I mean, that, that plan probably doesn't change. They just find somebody to deal with the Iron Sheik to get the title off of him, not necessarily do anything further than that, and try to build that guy up to be the person. That, you begin the process of getting the belt back to Hulk Hogan when he recovers. That's how yeah. it, you know, and, and you move on. Yeah, and, and you, know, you take the title away from the Sheik in the dressing room. Your services are no longer needed here, and you move on, and... You never show the footage of what happened. You just kind of keep it quiet. All right. Mark Beaudry asked, what if Fritz and Watts merged and created the UWF together? What do you think? Well, they really kind of almost did without merging. Uh, half the company of world class of Ken Mantell brought to UWF with the exception of not Devon Eriks. I mean, that's really what happened in a way. And I don't think anything would have changed because of the economy at that time and that part of the country. And when you look at the world-class talent roster and you look at the talent roster that Watts has in the first six months or whatever with the UWF and with Ken Mantell as the booker, all the guys that were starring in world-class with the exception of the Von Erics are suddenly in the UWF. Yeah. All, all the guys who were marketable. Yeah. So it basically you got your merger. What happened basically happened. And you know, there, there was never going to be a merger between Fritz and Watts. These are two guys, very strong-headed, very strong-willed. They needed to be the ones in charge of their own company, not in a partnership with one another. It's funny, they worked together a lot in the 80s and even after the war started. But here's the thing, Vince McMahon started the wrestling war in earnest in the very beginning of 1984. Less than two and a half years later, no one was working together anymore. It was every man for himself in the wrestling business. And Watts and Fritz von Erich went from being strongly connected and, you know, working together on occasion to Watts saying, okay, I'm raiding your roster and I'm also promoting in your territory. It's just the way it went. It was inevitable. Couldn't agree more. I'm an agreeable sort. Lester Lemke. Wonder if he's related to Mark Lemke, former Red Sox second baseman. Always wondered if Vern would have gone along with Dusty's idea. What if Dusty went to the AWA instead of Crockett? What could he have done? He had the Road Warriors, Nick Bockwinkle, Kurt Henning, the Freebirds, and he had ESPN. It would have been interesting. Interesting question, Lester. What do you think, Sean? You know, I don't know. I I I can't imagine. Any of those talents that Dusty didn't already have a history with or would eventually use, did we really have room for 50-year-old Nick Bockwinkle in a company with 45-year-old Dusty Rhodes at that particular time? I think they might have done a little better at first 
but inevitably you would have had the same stuff all the time. And uh, for as good as Nick Bockwinkel was for a 50-plus-year-old man, there's only so far that you can push that. And then on top of that, that probably would have led to a whole bunch of Nick Bockwinkel Dusty Rhodes matches, which would have really wouldn't have been necessarily awful matches, but I'm not sure considering the visuals of a Nick Bockwinkel Dusty Rhodes feud as the top of the AWA. I'm not sure it sells to an ESPN demographic at that particular time. Uh, it would have been interesting. You know what? Here's the thing. When Dusty left Florida, and went to the Mid-Atlantic Territory in the middle of 1984. I mean, Crockett gave, let Dusty, I mean, he gave Dusty a lot of room creatively. Dusty tore that promotion down and rebuilt it, and I can't help but think that if he had gone to the AWA, he would have done the exact same thing. If he had the the guts to de-emphasize Ricky Steamboat to the point where Ricky Steamboat left for the WWF, he would have done the exact same thing to Nick Bockwinkel uh, if he thought it was the right thing to do. I give Dusty a lot of credit for bringing in a lot of talented guys that weren't seen as superstars when he got them. Tully Blanchard, one example. Arn Anderson, another example. Magnum TA. You know, so Dusty, could he have rebuilt the AWA the way he rebuilt Mid-Atlantic? I'm going to say yes, but there's one problem. Could Vern have completely stepped aside like Jim Crockett did and let Dusty do what he needed to do? That I am, I doubt, to be honest with you. Well, and, and another factor that I would think would, would probably, Vern was constantly churning out these wrestling school guys, which in the 70s, you were getting Ric Flair and Ken Patera and Ricky Steamboat, and by the end, you're getting Tommy Jammer and Ricky Rice. And in that part of the country, it's not a warm weather territory. So not a lot of wrestlers necessarily wanted to be there year-round. Yeah. I think they may have had trouble getting guys that weren't from there to go there full-time, or, I mean, or for, for a long time. I think that would have been more of a problem than they foresaw. I think it could have happened, but they had national television. Crockett had region, when Dusty, and, and I don't take anything, he did a phenomenal job tearing apart the Crockett territory and building them back up. But could he have done that with the national eye looking at you instead of the regional eye? There's a lot more pressure when everybody's seeing it because you can't repeat it. Once you've done that, you can't do it again and expect it to be as as good. It could have happened, but judging by that time frame, my guess is he didn't have time on his side like he did when he came in for Crockett. Because when you're dealing with national television, you have time constraints. Jim Crockett had how many different television shows in 1984? You had all the worldwide, not worldwide, and and all their different syndicated shows. Vern had one show. No, I think Crockett only had two shows. He had an A show and a B show, and I know I think the AWA only had one show. But at this point, I mean, you kind of do want a B show to have that, you know, just that additional hour that you can offer because everyone else had so much television. And with ESPN, you would have had one show, and you would have had to it, it had it would have been a very to me would have been a very difficult thing to pull off to have one show to do all that you needed to take to clean up and still be able to devote the time to your superstars. I think it's doable, but it would have been very difficult when you're constrained by ESPN and the time frame that we're in. 
Yeah, I, I I definitely see that. Kevin Barrett asked, what if Ole was forced out of Georgia? I guess this is 1982 or early 83 instead of Jim Barnett. Any thoughts? Oh, interesting. So you're saying in this question, what if Ole was forced out of Georgia instead of Jim Barnett? Yeah. So if Ole left and Jim Barnett was left with the bones after Vince did Black Sunday, is that the question? No. Sometime in like late 1982 or early 1983, basically Ole tossed Jim Barnett. Okay. So if Jim Barnett was still running the show instead of Ole in 82, probably even more Tommy Rich. Uh, <laughs> at that particular time, I would bet that probably Jim Barnett – he had almost a concrete view of the wrestling business of what you did. And I, I just don't see him changing over time, especially if he's the boss. I, I really think Georgia was a territory that was on the, there was nothing anybody was going to do to rehab Georgia. I, I just think that, that they had had national television and they were on their way down. McMahon was coming. I don't think hardly anything changed. They, that territory was in trouble. Everybody loves the Georgia stuff because of what it was. It was the first national, but you go back and you watch some of that stuff. And in hindsight, it's not all that great. So I love the Terry Gordy, Jimmy Snuka stuff. By God, they, I wish they had to stay together longer. Uh, here's, here's my thought on it. I got Georgia Cable starting in fall of 81. And, you know, I loved the show in 81, loved the show in 82. And in 83, it fell off a cliff. And this is Ole taking over where, according to Ole, he was trying to save up money for the company and you know have money in the bank for the company and that's why he went with a lot of cheaper talent why he ran off paul orndorff the freebirds etc and now we've got larry zabisco and killer brooks on the top of the card i mean it felt like to me only thought all you had to do was put the name wrestling on it and fans weren't going to be able to tell the difference between the good wrestling and the bad wrestling you know the the butch reeds and the ivan koloffs versus the Pez Whatleys in the main events and, and Buzz Sawyer on TV getting that huge push. And I think it would have been better with Jim Barnett in charge of it. I mean, it couldn't have been any worse. John, do you, do you have a Jim Barnett impersonation for me? I'm afraid I don't. <laughs> Everybody in the world seems to have one. And since I've never met the gentleman, I was just wondering if, 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 if you had one. No, I I purposely do not do a Jim Barnett impersonation because everyone else does one. So I everyone I, else I, seems to have one. No, I, I I'm not doing it, man. <laughs> but I, you know, I thought I'd ask. And you know, uh, Seth Hansen, friend of the show, will bang the table about. Look, this guy was way more than you know. Ah, my boy, and and he's right. I mean, the guy did a great job in Georgia. He got wrestling rolling in Australia. I, I think he's in the Observer Hall of Fame. If he isn't, he should be. So anyway, I, I don't well, want some, to just reduce him can, to a, an impersonation because I've never heard the guy talk, to be honest with you. Same here. And, and look, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, look at the background. The problem is, is what he's remembered by guys of our age is the oh my boy and his brief little dalliance in the WWF and WCW, his greatness was all stuff before our time. And when you were in the front office of anything, your deeds can fade away. Like, look at the best architects in pro sports, the general managers of the 60s and the 70s. Uh, you got to be a real hardcore to know who they are. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, you know, I mean, 
And by the way, there, the, the Jim Barnett, Tommy Rich story about how Tommy Rich got the NWA title, it cannot possibly be true. So please don't believe that. Well, I wasn't referring to that, but but at okay, that particular time, we were getting a lot of Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer, and uh, you use who you like and you use who you can trust. And uh, Tommy Rich had a lot of trust with Jim Barnett and Ole. So uh, I, I just think there was nothing that was going to be done about that. It was a company that was that had cancer within, and it was going to die one way or the other. Yeah, um, you know what? I, I don't know. I mean... Vince McMahon is Vince McMahon, and he's usually going to win. But, I mean, WTBS and the Georgia Company had such a head start on Vince McMahon. I mean, Vince McMahon had national cable, but it was on midnight on Saturday nights. This thing is on primetime on WTBS. So with the right promoter, and that's a big caveat, We right. you know, they had a chance at the time. All right, Jeff Bowdrin, friend of mine since the 80s. What if Ric Flair... Never made it back from the plane crash. Who would have carried the ball for the NWA? Jeff Baldwin. I, I traded football tapes with Jeff Baldwin 20 years ago. I wonder if he remembers me or not. <laughs> uh, well, Rick Flair would have never made it back from the plane crash. Wow. And the best wow. football was back in the day. Oh, gosh. I bet you Jeff Baldwin and I probably traded 100 games back and forth. Uh, That's cool. You know, I, I kind of, there's so many guys that, weren't Ric Flair, but probably would have gotten title runs. And, man, there's so many guys that could have filled the bill. You know, maybe Greg Valentine. Uh, I'm not saying he was Ric Flair, but he was a guy that, you know, wrestled hard-hitting matches, had yet to be kind of dropped to the second level by the, you know, from his WWF runs. And he would have been young around that time of the plane crash. They could have built Greg Valentine up as they did Ric Flair. Let's go with Greg Valentine for the purposes of this argument. Uh, your answer is my exact answer. When Ric Flair and Greg Valentine were together in Mid-Atlantic, mid to late 70s, Ric Flair was Batman and Greg Valentine was kind of Robin. And then they did the thing in 1980 when Greg Valentine came back to Mid-Atlantic and turned on Batman. I think Greg Valentine, would, if Flair had never come back, Valentine would have stepped into the Flair role. I don't know who would have stepped into the Valentine role, but I think it would have worked out pretty much the exact same way it did. Right. I mean, Valentine, a little harder-hitting wrestler, a little slower-paced, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that would, that would be my choice. That would come at least within the realm of being close to what Ric Flair was at that time. All right. Fred Sacco says, all of the good ones have been taken, so I'll ask the standard what if Magnum TA does not have that accident question? What do you think? He probably gets a run with Flair. I, I think in the end, remember when we said earlier how we sometimes glorify the guys that leave us early in, yes. in sports and film and music? I think we kind of glorify Magnum. He was very good. I'm not taking anything away from him, but he probably wasn't to the level that we like to remember him as or, or where we think he would have been. I, I think he would have probably been maybe along the lines of a Sting or a Luger, where he probably would have had a title run or two, probably at, at least at WCW level. He would have been a top guy, but I don't think he would have been a guy that you built a company around. All right, I have expressed this. This is why, again, it's, it's good to have a, a guest on this show because I've answered this question before. I personally think that when Magnum, and I liked Magnum, I'm not, you know, trashing him but at the time of the accident 
the arrow was on its way down. He was losing popularity. He was, it was like the Rock and Roll Express in 86. They were hot as could be, as Magnum was. But I think Magnum had peaked at the time of his accident. I think, you know, once again, he would have gone the direction of the Rock and Roll Express. He would have lost popularity. There's every chance that he would have turned on Dusty Rhodes like all of Dusty Rhodes' best friends always did. I, I think there might have been more money in heel Magnum than face Magnum. To me, he came across more as a tweener, not in who he wrestled, but in his interviews. You know, he was always snarling, and he always had the fire in his eyes. And he, to me, I think he might have been a hell of a heel. I, I, I agree with you that he was kind of on the downward slide as a baby face, but he was such good friends with Dusty. If Dusty was booking, Magnum was going to get a push near the top of the cards. Uh, I could very easily see him being, you know, along the lines of how they used Sting and Luger in the late 80s, early 90s. I do think there might have been some money in a Magnum heel run because he, he can't, if you watch those interviews, he almost spat out his words. Like, I can't stand you. Imagine if he's with that kind of delivery and with that kind of emotion, if he's talking about dusty or he's talking about the guy, the fans love that I'm a lot more intrigued with. Uh, Maybe. I mean, what was, and I've said this before on the show. I I forget, forgive me if I'm repeating, Magnum's immediate future was that he was going to beat Nikita Koloff in, in an I quit cage match at Starcade 86, and then he was going to go around the horn against Ric Flair. Uh, all right. The, this question has more information in it than I have for an answer. It's by Jonathan French. What were the dynamics between Robert Fuller's Southeastern Territory and Crockett in the 70s? Crockett and Fuller both had TV in the Tri-Cities and ran regularly, but Fuller never worked for Crockett, despite Knoxville and Asheville slash Charlotte being so close. Was there heat there, and why did the NWA allow it in the 70s? And one of the reasons Flair stopped defending the NWA title in Continental in 1986 was because Fuller expanded back into the Tri-Cities, which was basically a Crockett town at that point, in late 1985. There's a ton of information here, but I mean, I I don't have an answer to a lot of this. Jonathan seems like he knows more than I do. The only thing that I, I I know Flair and Mulligan owned that territory for a year or two, and it didn't go well financially. And I hung around Bristol and Johnson City for like a week last year uh, on a baseball trip. And I actually was talking to people about the wrestling memories and stuff like that. And they talk about when the Fullers had it, but they, they talk more about the the flair when they had flair and Mulligan and Blackjack Jr. slash Barry Windham. But I don't have any answers for why, uh, what kind of heat Ron Fuller may have had with uh, the Crockett's or the NWA other than maybe something happened between him and flair over, uh, I'm guessing... Maybe something financial between him and Flair, and Flair said, I'm not going to help that guy. No, that's just a theory on my part. I, I, that one's way above my pay grade, John. Now, I, you know what? I wish I had more information. The only thing I can say is I, I know by 1986, Jim Crockett was not sending out Ric Flair to the, any other territories. His, as far as I know, his last match uh, defending the NWA title outside of JCP 
was 1980, October 1986, when he went to Florida and defended against Steve Kern. I don't know. That could very well be the last one. I do remember something in the aftermath where they were pumping him going to Portland against some guy named Top Gun. Oh, that, and, that was 89. That's right. I okay, think that was okay. 88 or 89. And I remember that they made such a big deal that that was so seldom done anymore, that going outside of the territory and all that stuff. I don't even know who Top Gun is. I forget who he was, but thank you for bringing that up. He was just some guy in Portland. All right. Brian Picard, what is the story with Bob Sweetan? I have heard many allude to him being a horrible person, but no details. Thanks and love the show. Thank you, Brian. Well, do you want to tell the story or you want me to tell it? You tell it, because I, I'm sure you know more about Bob Sweetin than I do, because I've only heard the horror stories, as Brian said. All right. Bob Sweetin, before I even heard the really bad stuff, just had a really negative reputation in the wrestling business as just being a, a real sour jerk and just not being very popular in the locker room. And then it turns out that he, I mean, he was deported to Canada from this, so I mean, it's not just an accusation. Apparently, he molested his daughter. So that doesn't exactly Ooh. put him on a list of, of sainthood. His ex-wife did an interview once, and she, she talked about what a bad guy he was, and you know, he did drugs, he did creepy stuff, so not not exactly the best rep. Uh, let me see. Ooh. Yeah, I can tell why. Yeah, uh, like I said, that then things got really bad. Tom Dang, Andre's back goes completely out 30 minutes before the WrestleMania 3 main event. What happens next? What do you think, Sean? <laughs> Can you imagine that locker room? Can yeah. you imagine? All, I, it would have to be chaotic. I don't know what you could come up with on that short of notice to try to save that. With the, that amount of people live and watching your biggest pay-per-view ever. Oh, Lord. I, I, I don't mean, know. I really don't. I mean, I, the fortunate thing that they could have, they had a, a few more options because you remember the British Bulldogs thing because the McMahons at that time always believed you dropped the title. Mm-hmm. You have, the fans have to see the title drop. That. So they had the advantage that Andre was not the champion. So they had a few more cards to play there. I, I don't really know. I mean, short of, you know, can we get possibly some kind of very big a, a, a trust uh, an even better brace. Somehow we got to get him to the ring. And maybe if, if somehow you could get him to the ring, maybe you could do some kind of version of how they did when the Warrior was beating him in 35 seconds. I think people would have pissed on that, mind you, but that might have been the might have been what they had. If he it was legitimately back injured slash basically immobile, maybe you use one of those trucks and that they used for that event and you just roll him on out. And he's sitting down, and you do something when he's getting in the ring, some kind of deal that you could give him a plausible excuse. And then, but I, I, I just that, that would be such a disaster. I can't imagine coming up with something on thirty minutes' notice. Yeah, I mean, to me, you know, from what I understand, Andre was getting in that ring no matter what. But let's take this hypothetical. Let's say Andre, you you can't even get him in the cart. And to have Hulk Hogan, you know, attack him while he's still in the card and roll him in the ring and pin him. Like, you know, even if you had to just do that, I would do it. But let's say Andre was completely out. I would have just explained to the crowd live, explained to the the audience at home that, you know, 
Andre just blew out his back, and it's going to be Hulk Hogan against King Kong Bundy. And I don't know what else to do. If there's any way to get Andre into the ring, you get him into the ring. I mean, I, I just, you're limited with so much. And can you imagine just, I don't care how big a wrestling genius you are. You've got all the things working against you. You've got a half hour. I don't know how you would, you'd either have to play the honesty card, which go figure in pro wrestling. Yeah. Or, you know, try to come up with some kind of angle or something where perhaps you just couldn't keep them apart. And Andre injured his back in the melee and the Michigan state athletic commission refuses to let him come out. And instead we're going to have, like you said, we're going to have Hulk Hogan against fill in the blank. Yeah. Uh, it would have been just an unbelievably disastrous event for the WWF. I mean, People would have been calling their pay-per-view companies looking for a refund, etc. All right, Ron Gamble asks, In 1983, Victory Magazine for the WWF had an article about the Von Erichs. This is actually 84, I think, but that's okay. They had a short video during one of the update segments on syndicated TV, and I remember this. After David Von Erich died, the WWF had a 10-bell salute, even though David never wrestled in the area. He actually wrestled in Madison Square Garden once, but you're largely correct, Ron. Vince was going hard after the Von Erichs in Dallas and got neither. But what if it worked? What would happen with David, assuming he didn't die in 1984? Would Kevin or Kerry go after the Intercontinental title? What would happen with Mike? What would the Von Erichs be doing in Vince land? What do you think, Sean? My guess would be under what Vince looks for in a wrestler, Carrie would be the bigger star, not David. Yeah. And if that time, if I, I don't see, certainly I can't imagine them running two territories. Like we answered a question earlier about running George's satellite territory. So they would have had to have immersed the Von Eriks into the WWF yet under, you can't imagine Fritz was going to give up his company without, assurances that his boys weren't going to be taken care of. I, I would imagine Kerry Von Erich would have been a huge star. I think David and Kevin would have been top guys as well. And I think somebody would have told Mike, this business isn't for you. <laughs> Ricky Steamboat worked the Cotton Bowl show in 1986 in what was going to be the first part of a talent exchange between the WWF and the world-class championship wrestling. And supposedly, after Ricky worked there, Vince tried to get a date on Kevin Von Erich, and you know Fritz wanted like twenty five thousand dollars for an appearance, and that was the end of it. Uh, and you know, the Cotton Bowl '86, we're talking October '86, kind of late in the game for the Von Erichs. Kerry is still out indefinitely due to the motorcycle accident. Kevin is far past his prime. Mike is a shell of his former self. So, but what would have happened in 84? I mean, all three Von Eriks, if Fritz were willing to lend them to the WWF on a part-time basis, I mean, he would have pushed all three of those guys hard. I can't see Mike being part of the picture, at least in, in you know, 84, but all three of the Von Eriks would have gotten huge pushes, especially Kerry, who I could see winning the Intercontinental title, which was a really big deal back then. And And at that time... They had the Freebirds in for that, what, a three-week run or whatever, a, little bit, a brief little snippet. I would imagine if the Von Erichs were around, he probably could have gotten them to stay, and you could have done some things with that. And I think if there would have been a desire to do it and make it work on both sides, it could have worked. 
in 84. After that, like you said, anything post motorcycle wreck is uh, no chance. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and Kerry Von Erich, you know, in 83, 84, he was a very unique talent. He was a, a good looking bodybuilder who could wrestle. A few years later, or, or past his motorcycle accident, there were plenty of guys who could do this. But I will say this if WWF could borrow the Von Erichs and Freebirds, they could have main evented the Boston Garden without even ever being on WWF TV, and it would have sold the place out. It would have sold the place out more than once. Well, I, I know they they uh, had TV up there, and they had yeah. what was the uh, the outdoor show at uh, some of uh, the Connecticut or Massachusetts or someplace like that. That it, it was in really Lynn, Massachusetts, in June '85. Lynn, Massachusetts, home of the Holyoke Millers. <laughs> Uh, I mean, Jim Cornette talks about, you know, going to Lynn, Massachusetts. Lynn is like, it's incredible. It's it's right on the ocean. And if you go to the beach there, you have a wonderful view of the Boston skyline. And Lynn is just disgusting. It is. Think about, <laughs> think about the worst city in Maryland. Multiply it by five. And that's Lynn. You know, you were giving me this beautiful, you know, it's right by the ocean. And you see, uh. A, a skyline view. You're you're talking. I'm thinking. Well, this must be a pretty nice place. And then it's the most disgusting city in America. I knew a guy who lived in Lynn. Okay, he lived a, a block away from the ocean. And I went to visit him, and he told me that his car. He had a crappy car. He wouldn't dare get a, a nice car. And he said every night he would have hit the windows down in the car because that was the only thing that kept people from breaking into the car. It's like, look. Go in the car. There's nothing in there. Go through the glove compartment. There's nothing in there. Here, the door's open. Don't break the window. Wow, it sounds like a lovely town. I don't think I'll be vacationing there anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, like I said, Cornette talks about, and, and they went to this dilapidated old football stadium, high school football stadium that I don't think they use for football anymore, and, and it looked like something out of a, a survival movie, honest to God. All right, John Thill. Two questions. We'll do this. What if Jerry Lawler had been given a run with the NWA title? What do you think, Sean? I think it would have been entertaining, I, and he would have had he would have had good matches, but they would have been different matches. I mean, Lawler was a great worker. His matches were great, but they weren't the kind of Ric Flair, Jack Briscoe type matches. They would have been different, really good title matches, and, and probably would have been a lot of fun to watch when you think about it, because all these guys that would have been challenging would have been wrestling a different style than they were used to. Although I do remember Harley race supposedly hated Jerry Lawler. That would have been fun. <laughs> uh, so I think he could have had a good run if there was a commitment to it, but it would have been a different style of title reign because Lawler wasn't the biggest guy in the world. Wasn't a Jack Briscoe technical wrestler was a bump taker, but not the kind, a different type of big bump taker than flair. It might've been arguably the most unique, NWA title run ever as far as in the ring, how the matches were going. And that's not to say it would have been bad. It just would have been different. I am a huge Jerry Lawler fan, and I think Jerry would have made a really good NWA champion. I think that is a minority opinion, perhaps, but he could wrestle. He could talk people into the building. I think he would have to get in better shape. That's, you know, sometimes Lawler got a little bit chubby, talked about it in his book. He's, I don't think he's ever lifted a weight in his life. That had to change. But you know what? 
if it's 1982 and the NWA champion is making 250 to $300,000 a year, you get in the gym and you get it done. Didn't Jerry Jarrett say that the reason they started dealing with Vern was because they tried to get Lawler a run and they just wouldn't bite? That is my understanding. They came into 1985 practically promising a Jerry Lawler NWA title run. Lawler came out and said, look, if I don't win the belt this year, I'm going to retire. And then they just kind of backed off of that. But now I think Jarrett has said that he was not promised the title, but they sure booked as if he was promised the title. Uh, Maybe it was inferred that this was a big possibility and they figured, okay, our chances are better than not. And then it just didn't work out. I I think Lawler would have done very well with it. It just would have been different. And anytime you do something different, some parts will think it's tremendous and some parts are not going to like it so much. So maybe I could see like uh, a territory where uh, in the ring work is a little more, uh, traditional maybe he might not have been quite as over in maybe florida or crockett but i think it would have been really big in places like world class mid-south i mean i could imagine him doing very well against Kevon eric's going into texas in some parts i think he would do exceedingly well other parts he would do okay but i just think it would be a he would do well but it would be different it would be not the traditional nwa title match but it would still be Really good stuff. Well, I mean, Fall 82, he was on, was it Fall or Summer? Right right around September, October. He was on WTBS, and they were building up a, a Jerry Lawler versus Roddy Piper feud. Yep. And, you know, it never happened because Piper wound up getting fired. But, I mean, Lawler did great promos, and he was over like crazy. Yeah. He certainly would have been able to talk him into the building, and his heel promos would have been tremendous. I mean, just look at the stuff he did during the, uh, when Jarrett bought, world-class, the Tennessee versus Texas thing, and he's going down there, and this was the end of the Tom Landry era Cowboys, and hey, you know, uh, you know, can somebody get their 11 kids out there beating the Cowboys 14 to nothing? <laughs> if that stuff would have been in the early to mid-80s when everything was on fire, my Lord, it, it would have been tremendous. I mean, I think it would have worked. I agree. I think Lawler would have made a an excellent NWA champion or an excellent WWF champion. I think he would have gotten over up here. Ah, John Phil gets another question in. What if Bruiser Brody had gone to the WWF in 1985? Ah, you see, this is where I get myself in trouble, John, just at the end of the show. I (laughs) am not the world's greatest Bruiser Brody fan. That's okay. I think there would have been trust issues because of how he had left McMahon in the 70s, McMahon Sr., and the fact that he didn't always want to do business, had to do things his own way. I I think... Assuming that they were able to work that part out, I think they would have been very careful, and he probably would have been one of those guys that got a run around the horn with Hogan. Maybe he would have been a pay-per-view. Where I'm in the minority is in the days where you only had one or two or three pay-per-views a year, I don't know if Bruiser Brody was the kind of, for wrestling fans, the hardcore buying the magazines, people like you and I, Bruiser Brody, Hulk Hogan would have been a dream match. I'm not sure the average guy that was watching that at that time would have looked at it that way. They may have looked at Bruiser Brody as just another John Studd, another really big guy. And he would have got a run, but I also think that there would have been a... I'm sure they would have covered all their bases and made sure that he wasn't going to pick up the title and run, or he wasn't going to... I don't think it's as much a shoot on Hulk Hogan and take him down and and all that, but... 
you got a guy who's got a history of saying, I don't like what you're doing, I'm leaving. And if he's the champion on a national television broadcast, what are you going to do? You can't, there's only so much hiding you can do in that situation. So I, I think he would have gotten to run with Hogan, but I, I don't think it would have been the phenomenal top-of-the-line business that a lot of people do, that a lot of people think. I'm not the Brody fan that a lot of people are. Yeah, I, I, like, I seem to like Bruiser Brody more than pretty much anyone at this point. Had he gotten in, in 1985, no one but Hulk Hogan was going to be WWF champion right. for a while. So that, that wasn't happening. But Brody, I think if he had come in and if, if he'd been willing to cooperate, which would have been a, a prerequisite. I mean, Harley Race had the same kind of reputation for a while. Like, you know, we were all wondering, will Harley cooperate? Well, he did, you know, and... If we had gotten that out of Brody, I think he would have been a top guy. If, you know, to be honest, yeah. I think he would have gotten what John Studd got, and yeah. it would have been Brody in the Stud role as Batman and Stud in the Ken Patera role as Robin. I mean, Brody was so much more athletic than Stud, and he was every bit as big as Stud. So I, I think he would have been even better in that role. Let me ask you something. You said the way he left the company in 1977. It looked pretty normal to me. Do you know something I don't? Oh, I can't say that I know this, but I, I seem to recall something along the lines of that he did his uh, his run with Bruno was not what was expected. Maybe that was because of uh, it didn't do the business that they thought it would when he was Frank the Hammer Goodish. Uh, no, he uh, was Bruce Brody up here. Okay, then I'm thinking of something else then. I apologize for that, John. There's <laughs> something that's sticking in my mind that that he left a territory as when he was Frank the Hammer Goodish under, maybe I'm not thinking of what I, I'm going to check on that. And if I ever come back, John, I'll have an answer for you. That, that sounds like something may have gone wrong. I know something went wrong between he and, and Bill Watts in Mid-South. He heard Watts referring to him and Stan Hansen. Ah, these two big dummies that don't know what they're, and Brody took it to heart. But anyway, our final question, and I think this one's for me, what are your memories of going to the Mid-South Coliseum and meeting Lance Russell? I don't think you've had that experience. I have not. If I ever went to the Mid-South Coliseum in 1985, it probably would have been for a Memphis State basketball game for the Keith Lee William Bedford Memphis State Tigers. <laughs> All right. I got to meet Lance Russell a total of three times. I said hello to him when I was at the Memphis TV tapings. I got to meet him again in Boston in 1989. Just once again, shaking his hand, saying hello. And a third time in 1995 at my second trip to the Mid-South Coliseum, he's exactly what he was on television. He's a gentleman. He's very friendly. I mean, obviously, I walk up to Lance in Memphis, the Mid-South Coliseum. I explain who I am. You know, well, I came from Drake at Massachusetts for this card. And he was, you know, he was very nice about it, very impressed. I had a picture of me and Lance. I've told the story on the show before. Me, Lance Russell, and Dave Brown on the set of the Memphis Wrestling Show, and somehow that picture did not survive. He seemed like such a nice man. The wrestling business is all perception anyway, but some, there's, occasionally there's people that you just get a feeling that that's who this guy is, and, yeah. and it came across as such. And I want to thank Jesus Salas Rodriguez for that question. I did not acknowledge him as I should. Sean, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for coming on. John, pleasure as always. Hope you'll have me back again. Next time, I'll try to have a better Bruiser Brody fact for you. Okay. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank our producer, Lightning Lou Kippelman, 
for all the great work he does behind the scenes. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.